hope some of you had a chance to watch the debate yesterday. I don't know how many of you did. Anybody get to see it? It was on pretty early in the day. Not a whole lot of people. Uh, you know, you don't live your Christian life in a vacuum. So often we think that uh, our theology and what we believe is totally personal. And maybe it might work its way out into particular personal relationships that we have. But many times we fail to see the implications uh, of our own theology in our lives. And one of those areas happens to be uh, this whole area of the relationship of the Christian as citizen. And uh, obviously we don't live our lives in a vacuum as it relates to our government. Government affects you every single day of your life. If you receive a Cal Grant or a Pell Grant, the government affects you. If you eat in the cafeteria, believe it or not, the government affects you. There are, there are laws on sanitation. There are laws on the, the processing and preparing of food that have to be obeyed. Government literally affects you every single day of your life. We as Christians, then, have a responsibility and really an opportunity to interact with that whole side of life. I hope you thought about the question that Professor Frazier raised on Monday. Are you a Christian American or are you an American Christian? And as we approach another presidential election, you know, we can really look back on a decade in American political life where, that has been characterized by probably the greatest involvement of evangelicals and fundamentalists in the political process. In reaction to this, American church historian Martin Marty asked this question, and the question he asked was this. Whether the church has changed... Did the church change America as much as America changed the church? That's a profound question, and it goes back to the very same question that Professor Frazier raised on Monday morning. Catholic theologian John Newhouse, author of the book entitled The Naked Public Square, believes this, that Christians are engaged today in what the Germans would call a Kulturkampf, or a war over the definition of American culture, over the ideas by which we should order our lives and live together. On Monday, Professor Frazier took you through a number of very relevant passages in the New Testament that talked about the role of the Christian as it relates to government. He first of all told us that our citizenship is transpolitical. That is, while we are citizens of the United States, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are also a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. And this should bring a particular perspective to our lives. A perspective that we are strangers, that we are pilgrims, that we are sojourners. And all that really tells us, young people, as Christians is, is that we're walking through this life. And in a very real sense, we're walking through this culture. And what it really tells us is simply this. It warns us as Christians about sinking our roots down too deeply in 
American culture. Because you see, if you sink your roots down too deeply in the culture, it makes you ineffective in speaking with a prophetic voice back to the problems and needs of that particular culture. Our citizenship is transpolitical. He then went on to tell us what our, what our citizenship involves as it relates to being a citizen under governmental authority. Professor Fraser took us down through Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. In verse 1, he reminded us that we are to accept governmental authority because the powers that be are ordained or ordered by God. That is, God brings governmental powers into line with His will. In verse 2 of Romans chapter 13, we are told not to resist God's appointment. That is, those who have been placed in authority over us in public office. In, verse, in the latter part of verse 2, we are told to submit or be, be punished. And the punishment there is not spiritual. The punishment there is temporal. It's a very practical word. If you don't obey the law, what's going to happen to you? If you don't submit to the law, you are going to be punished. In verses 3 and 4, we are to submit because the main function of government is to, is to suppress evil. And on the other side of that, a function of government is to preserve life. In that verse, in verse 4, we also see that government is given the power of the sword. And what that does is it legitimizes both police and military power. The government has been given the power of the sword. And also, it's very interesting that I, the idea of the sword also has to do with the idea of being able to take a person's life. The sword is the lethal weapon. And so Paul tells us in Romans 13 that the state has the right to take a life. The state has been given the power of the sword. The, an individual has not been given the power of the sword, but the state has been given the power of the sword. And then in verse 5, we were reminded that we are to submit for conscience sake. That is, the reason we obey the laws is not because we're going to get caught. The reason we obey the laws is because as a Christian, it is the right thing to do. As a Christian, it is the right thing to do. And then we heard about some positive things that we were to do. We were to pay our taxes. Now, I firmly believe in paying my taxes, but I, but I also firmly believe in not giving the government one extra dime that they're not entitled to. We are to pay our taxes. And in verse 7, we are to be just in our dealings with the government. We are not to, to defraud the government or to cheat the government. We as Christians are to be just in our dealings with the government. And then we talked about in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, that we are to pray for those who are in political authority over us. But it's very interesting what Paul says in that verse. There is a reason why we pray. And the reason we pray is this, so that we as Christians may live a quiet and peaceable life. What is the purpose of that? So that while there is peace throughout the land, we then have the opportunity to preach the gospel. So we pray that we may live a quiet and peaceable life under the authority of our political leaders. Then Professor Fraser also talked to us about that there are times when we disobey as Christians. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22, Christ, when he confronted the Pharisees on paying the temple tax, said this, We are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. That's a beautiful saying. Remember what he did? He, picked, he took up a coin and he asked the Pharisees, he said, Whose picture is on this coin? And what was their answer? Caesar's. And that's when he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Caesar's imprint was on that coin. Where is God's imprint in our life? 
God's imprint is on our lives. And therefore, there are certain temporal things that we yield to the state, but there are also other things that we yield to God and to God alone. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, once again, when the, when the disciples, when Peter and John were arrested for preaching the gospel, they were told not to preach the gospel. And what was their answer? We ought to obey who? God rather than man. And what did they do? They went out and preached the gospel. And as a result of that, they were what? They were thrown into prison. Did Peter and John resist forcefully? No. Let me give you another good example of that. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when our Lord was accused unjustly by the Pharisees, and the soldiers of the state came to arrest him. And what did Peter do? Peter, unilaterally, acting on his own, pulled out his sword and cut off the ear of the servant. And our Lord rebuked him for that because that, as a Christian, was not Peter's role. Peter was usurping the role of the state. So once again, then, when we are challenged, as it would be to preaching the gospel, reading the word of God, prayer, if these things were taken away from us as Christians by a government, what would be our response? What did the Christians do in the Soviet Union? What did they do in Poland? What did they do in Romania? What did they continue to do? They continued to preach the gospel, they continued to read their Bibles, and they suffered the consequences, which was what? Imprisonment. We ought to obey God rather than man. That goes back to the trans-political idea of our citizenship. There are certain things that the state does not have any authority over us as a Christian. And it is in those things where we are called upon to obey God. But if we obey God, at the same time we are violating the law of the state, then the result will be that we will be punished by the state and we submit to that just as the disciples did readily. So that's where we left it on Monday. And what I want to do today then is to, is to kind of flesh this out and give you some practical ideas as to, how, as to how you should work out, as a Christian, your citizenship in the United States of America. What is our role as a Christian citizen? Do we have a responsibility to take our beliefs into the public arena where they are so greatly needed? Well, we have some hints from this right from our own Constitution. Remember, Romans 1 tells us, that we are citizens of a temporal state. Or Romans 13 tells us we are citizens of a temporal state. We happen to live in the United States of America. God, by His beneficence, has allowed you and me to live in a nation that is basically a republic. A republic basically means is that the people elect those representatives to serve them. And our Constitution tells us then that as citizens, we have certain rights because we live in this country. The 15th and 17th Amendment to the Constitution tells us that we as Christians and we as citizens have the right to vote. We have the right to vote. And one of the ways then, as an obedient Christian, under the authority of this nation, one of the things you can do one of the ways in which you can participate is you can vote. The First Amendment also guarantees us freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and freedom of petition. We have the right as Christians to utilize all those avenues to preach the gospel and really even to oppose the government. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and freedom of petition. 
the Fourth and Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments give us as citizens the right to due process of law. That is, we can use the courts. I'm reminded at this point that the Apostle Paul really understood his Roman citizenship, didn't he? Did the Apostle Paul use the Roman government when he had an opportunity? Absolutely. When he was finally arrested for the last time in Jerusalem, he finally appealed to who? He appealed to Caesar as a Roman citizen. And this guaranteed him certain procedural and judicial rights under Roman law. Paul used the court system to further the preaching of the gospel. But it's very interesting, Paul never tried to use the state to enforce Christian belief. There's a big difference. Paul never used the state, nor did any Christian in the first century, ever use the state to enforce Christian beliefs. He used the state in a way to guarantee him the right to be able to spread and to preach the gospel. Now, we must understand that government cannot, and this is very important, young people, for you to get a hold of this theologically. You need to understand that the government cannot bring in the kingdom of God. And frankly, neither can we. Our job is not to bring in the kingdom. The kingdom is alive and well in our hearts. But it is not our job to bring in the kingdom. Who will bring in the kingdom? Jesus Christ will bring in the kingdom. That is not our role. But nevertheless, we still have a responsibility to live out the reality of God's kingdom in our public lives and in the public arena. One of the things that really bothers me about the interpretation of the separation of church and state, and you've heard this, the wall of separation between church and state. Now, granted, there are certain things that the government cannot do in relation to religion in this country, but it was never designed to be able to eliminate Christians from speaking their mind and speaking the words of God in the public arena. What has really happened today is, is that those who really hold that view want us as Christians to totally privatize our lives, to keep our Christian beliefs within us, that we have no right to take them into the public square and into public debate. That is nowhere found in the Constitution. That is a myth that has been perpetuated by the ACLU, if you will, in this country. So, the result then is we are to take the kingdom of God that is in our lives into the public square. And we then are to be agents, listen to me, agents of justice, of mercy, love, and servanthood. These are the kinds of things that should drive us in political activity. Not power. Not self-aggrandizement. Okay? But justice... Mercy, love, and servanthood. And let me, let me explain this to you. We're going to run through the Bible very, very quickly here, and I want to develop these, these major ideas as I see them. Turn to Psalm 33, verse 5. The first point that you need to understand in the whole area of American politics and in politics in general is that God is just. Let me say that again. God is just. Look at verse 33, verse 1. Psalm 33, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, David says, O ye righteous, for praise is benefiting to the upright or to the just. God works righteousness and justice for all. Any decision that you make as it relates to voting on any issue, 
or being involved in politics at any level, or frankly being involved in the public arena in any area of life, the first question you need to grapple with many times is, is what is going on? Is it just? It better be just because God is just. God's justice demands that we as Christians defend those who find themselves being treated unjustly. Psalm 140, verse 12, tells us this. The Lord maintains the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Look at that, look at that again for a minute. Psalm 140 and verse 12. Psalm 140 and verse 12. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and the right of the poor. Now, this is interesting. Who is speaking these words? It is none other than King David. King David understands that as a representative of God, God is concerned about those that are afflicted and those that are poor in any culture. And God abhors injustice. God abhors injustice. Let's see what God thinks about injustice. Turn to Amos with me, if you will. One of those little, tiny, minor prophets, okay? Look at the book of Amos. Now, remember, I'm trying to set out some major categories for you here, the categories of justice, mercy, love, and servanthood, as it reflects being involved in the public arena. Look at Amos chapter 2, and I want to run you through some passages here, okay? Look at verse 6. We're going to find out now what the Lord, what the Lord thinks about those kind of people that are unjust. Look at verse 6. Now, remember, Amos is written to the northern kingdom. It's written to the kingdom of Israel, okay? Now, something else you need to understand so that you can really get the context here. When, when Amos wrote this book, the northern kingdom was at its pinnacle in terms of its wealth and in terms of its power. Everything was going great. Wealth was all over the place. People had money to burn. But listen to what God says. Look at verse 6. Thus saith the Lord... For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Now listen to these transgressions. They're kind of strange. Because they sold the righteous for silver, and the poor for a pair of shoes. What was happening in this culture was simply this. The righteous and the poor were being treated unjustly by those who controlled the political and military power or, 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 I'm sorry, the material power of that particular kingdom. Very interesting. Go over to chapter 5 and look at verse 24. And this, these, these kinds of verses are sprinkled entirely throughout this book. Look at chapter 5 and look at verse 24. This is the great challenge that God would desire for Israel. This is what He wants Israel to be like. This is what he wants Israel to do. But let justice run down like waters and righteousness like a mighty system. That was God's desire for Israel, that Israel would practice justice and righteousness in all of its personal dealings. Now go to chapter 8. Go to chapter 8. And look, look at verses 4 to 6. I, this is a very interesting passage. Now what we have here is simply this. Uh, we've got a bunch of men here that uh, really 
treat the needy unjustly. Look at verse 4. Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone? That is, when will the sacrifices be gone? When can I get out of the temple? It's like a guy sitting in church on Sunday morning, and all he can think about is how he's going to make money the rest of the week. Right? That's the idea here. Saying, when will the new moon be gone, and that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat, making the effort small, and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit. What were these guys doing? They were actually worshiping on the Sabbath, and all they could think about was ripping somebody off the next day when they sold them their products. What were they doing? They were falsifying the scales. Look at verse 6. That we may buy the poor. Here it is. Same verse almost. We may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. Yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. You see, God goes on in the book of Amos to condemn injustice wherever he sees it. And believe me, young people, that's why you need to understand which comes first in your life. Are you an American first or are you a Christian first? If you're an American first, or if you're a Christian first, when you see injustice, no matter where it is, whether it's personal, whether it's in public, you will speak out against it and you will stand against it. You will speak with a prophetic word. And the problem with the church in America today, so many of us, we've been co-opted by this materialistic, power-hungry system. And we couldn't, we couldn't recognize injustice if we saw it. God hates injustice. Well, what is our role then? I believe it is simply this. The church must defend the cause of the meek and the cause of the weak. How do we do this? Through showing mercy once again. Doing unto others good works. You see, young people, listen. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that was a wonderful privilege. God has privileged you by placing you into the kingdom of His dear Son. But don't forget this. With privilege comes responsibility. God has been gracious in our lives. We, in turn, should be living symbols of our former helplessness. And it has to begin personally before it can begin in the church. What kind of an attitude do you have towards others who are being treated unjustly because of what God has already mercifully done in your life? Thirdly, besides justice and mercy, servanthood. And Professor Fraser mentioned to you on Monday that one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is Mark 10, verses 43 and 44, where Jesus said He came not to minister, but to be a minister. He came not to serve, He came not to be served, but to serve. And it's very interesting in that passage that our Lord uses both of the primary terms. He uses the word diakonos, which means to wait on tables. He also uses the verb doulos, which means as a bond slave. You see, and that's our model. We are not to be served as believers. We are to serve. And it's very interesting if you go back and read through that whole passage in Mark chapter 10. One of the things that you will discover is, is that our Lord says one of the major emphases of all Gentile world powers, of which the United States is one, is that people in those societies seek wealth and power. They seek to lord it over other people. And Christ comes back to His disciples and says, And such shall not be one of you. 
You, in turn, rather than lording it over people and exercising power over people, your role is to be a servant, a waiter on tables, a doulos, a bond slave. In the public square, then, we are to be noted as Christians by our servanthood. And fourthly, by grace. We do good to others by serving them. Why? Because we're motivated by grace and we're motivated by compassion. Now, given that we are motivated by justice and mercy and servanthood and grace, how can these be applied to specific political issues? And I want to give you two this morning. How can we take what we've just learned about God's love for justice and God's hatred of injustice and the need for us to minister in mercy and in servanthood and in grace in the public arena, how can we then apply these things to actual political public issues that we are faced with today? And I want to, I want to zero in on two. Okay? I want to zero in on two. Remember I said back in Romans chapter 13, Paul teaches us that the primary responsibility of government, the primary responsibility of government is to keep the peace and to preserve life. To keep the peace and to preserve life. Now, let me ask you a question. Is our government doing a very good job today in the area of preserving the life of the unborn? You all know the answer to that. The answer is no. And yet we realize that it was, gov it was government's responsibility that was given to government in the Noahic Covenant clear back in Genesis chapter 9. And there it is very clear that the role that Noah had was simply this, that if somebody shed innocent blood, Noah, as the patriarch of the human race, had the responsibility to take the life of the person who shed, who shed innocent blood. And that then comes down to the role of the state. Unfortunately, in this country, it is not seen that way by most of our citizens. For some reason, it is, it is absolutely impossible for over 50% of the people in this country to look at the unborn as flesh and blood. To them, the unborn is an abstraction. It's never seen. They are never seen. They are out of sight. They are out of mind. And so, obviously, it's very easy to deal with that on a pro-choice level. But let me illustrate this, if I might, because this has happened before in our culture, and it is absolutely as unjust today as it was unjust then, unjust then. In 1857, there was a very important Supreme Court case. And the, and the majority opinion was written by Chief Justice Taney. And it was the Dred Scott decision. The Dred Scott decision basically said this, that blacks were declared to be property. Otherwise, they were non-people. That is, a slave owner could do anything he wanted with a black slave because that slave was nothing more than private property. How often do you hear the argument today? We, a woman, has an absolute right to privacy. You see, what's going on here is exactly the same. What is in the woman's womb is nothing more than property. And therefore, she has a right to do with that property as she pleases. So this isn't a new idea. This idea we, we had with us in 1857, 
when black people in this country were also found to be nothing more than chattels, nothing more than private property. And thus the government had no authority over them or over the slaveholders. It's the same with Roe v. Wade. The unborn child is treated as property and as a non-person. Now, what are our options here as Christians on this issue? Given the fact that we want to practice justice, we want to practice mercy, we want to practice servanthood, and we want to practice grace. What are our options? What can we do? What can we do as citizens of this country? Well, one thing we could do is we could push for a constitutional amendment. I don't believe that will ever happen. You need three-fourths of the states to ratify it. First has to be approved by Congress itself, by a two-thirds vote. So the idea of us ever getting a constitutional amendment on this issue doesn't seem to be very realistic now, given the way that the country is split on this particular issue. And from my own personal standpoint, I don't believe the Constitution was ever designed to, to have these kinds of probationary things in it. It was not designed, or the amendment process was not designed to address specific types of behavior. We tried that once before. What was the issue? Prohibition. And it failed miserably. I mean, how can you have, how can you have prohibition when over half the people in, in, in the United States want to drink? What do they do? They just simply break the law. You see, the law must not only have moral force behind it, but it also must have the support of at least a consensus in the country for that law to work. Well, that's one possibility. Well, another possibility, and this might seem more reasonable, that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade. I think there's still a possibility that that will happen. Now, while this would take the national government out of the abortion business, it would be left then to each state to deal with it. It would be like it was before 1973. See, before 1973, it was a state issue. A state legislature could deal with abortion any way they wanted to. So one state would have an anti-abortion law, another state would have a, a pro-choice law. That's the way it was before 1973. The problem here will simply be this. The large states where most of the abortions take place would probably maintain pro-choice laws on their state or in, the state in those particular states. So the idea that, let's say, California would ever convert back to this idea of, uh, uh, of a banning abortion is also not very realistic. The large industrial states would simply still allow abortion. Now, given that, what then should be the kingdom response? It seems we don't have a whole lot of choices legally. What then should be the kingdom response? Now remember, the goal is to mediate justice, mercy, servanthood, and grace. And we see here that the state has failed in its primary responsibility in the protection of life. Now, once again, I said, we as Christians believe in the sanctity of life. But you also need to understand the other side of the coin. Why are so many people confused on this issue? Why, why do over half the people in America believe that pro-choice is the way to go? They don't personally believe that. But see, here's what happens in our country today. Because there is no longer what I would call a Reformation consensus. The umbrella is gone. And the problem now simply becomes a person would say to themselves, well, I personally don't believe in abortion. But I don't think I have the right to tell anybody else what they should do. That's really where the issue is today. I mean, you could run a poll right now and you would find, if you asked an individual person, do you personally believe in abortion? 
it'd be 75, 80% of, this, of the people in this country would say no. But on the other hand, if you ask another question, you believe you have the right or the state has the right to tell somebody else what they should do, what would the answer be? No. See, that's the dilemma that we find ourselves in as Christians. And the problem is that so many secularists, they see the other side of the coin. They see that 50% of the children born in urban areas are raised in single-parent families. They ask the question, what's going to happen to all these children? You know, who's going to take care of them? Who's going to raise them? Who's going to provide prenatal? Who's going to provide both prenatal and postnatal care? Who's going to provide the counseling? Who's going to provide the job for that woman if she stays home and takes care of that child? See, those are the issues that we as Christians should be directly addressing. That's where we mediate justice. And that's where we mediate mercy and love and servanthood. And so often the Christian community has not seen the abortion issue in its fullness. The fact that if we are going to tell a woman that she should bear a child because that child in her womb is created in the image of God, then does our responsibility end there? Does our responsibility end there? It doesn't end there. What is that, what is that single woman to do when that child is born? She has to support herself. Where is that child going to go? Where does she get the postnatal care? So that her child gets good, so that her child gets good medical attention while while he or she is growing up. You see, those are the issues that the church needs to be wrestling with, because obviously the culture is not. So what I'm what I'm calling us to do today on this particular issue is that when we call for a pro-life position, we have got to be pro-life all the way along. And how do we do this? By mediating justice and mercy and servanthood and grace. Christians need to see the scope of this particular challenge. Issue number two, the state's responsibility to protect all its citizens, especially in relation, maybe let's say, to the poverty and the poor in this country. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Who are the poor? Who are those in poverty in this country? Who are the homeless? Well, most studies will tell us that over 75% of those who are homeless, who are on the streets today, are there because of mental illness. There is simply no place to house them or to keep them in this country anymore. Others are poor because of alcoholism. Others are simply transient. Now, folks, you've got to understand this. There is a way of life that many people really enjoy. And that way of life is absolutely having no responsibility for anybody and anything. And who can do that better than a transient? I've worked in missions many, many times. I used to preach down in rescue missions. Really interesting. You go down there, you go down there in the winter, and the place is jam-packed, five, six hundred people. You go down there in the summer, and there's 60 people in there. The professional transient basically follows the weather map. He's up in Seattle in the summer, and he's in Los Angeles in the winter. I'm sorry, yeah, in Los Angeles in the winter. And the reason for that is simply this. He has no responsibility for anybody or anything. He lives his life exactly the way he wants it. And believe me, folks, whether you like to admit this or not, there are many people that really like that style of life. Now, on the other hand, there are people that are genuinely poor and are genuinely in need. Let me give you some causes as to how I see this today. Let me just give you two. I believe one of the greatest causes of modern poverty, and this might shock you, is radical feminism. You didn't me to say that, did you? 
radical feminism. Let me give you some data. 70% of today's women in the labor force work out of economic necessity. You hear that? 70% of today's women in the labor force work out of economic necessity. Most are single, widowed, or divorced. 77% of this nation's poverty is now borne by women and their children. Did you hear that? 77% of this nation's poverty is borne by women and their children. The number of poor families headed by men has actually declined over the past 15 years by more than 25%. On the other hand, the number of women who head families below the official poverty line has increased by 39%. By 39%. One in three families headed by women, I should say one family in three headed by women, is in poverty compared to one in ten by men. Here's what we've seen, folks. In the 70s and 80s, we have seen the feminization of poverty in this country. We have seen the feminization of poverty in this country. Well, who else really seems not to be able to get above and lift this whole issue of poverty? Well, obviously, I think we have to look at our inner cities. What about being poor? And what about being black in America today? On January 25th, 1986, Bill Moyers on public television ran a very, very sobering piece. And it was called The Vanishing American Family. In that, he kind of dissected the whole nation. Different groups, different cultures, different ethnic groups, different socioeconomic classes. And when he got down to looking at the black family in urban America, it was absolutely one of the most chilling things I've ever listened to or seen in my entire life. Listen to me. 60% of all black births are illegitimate. 50% of teenage black fam- 15, 50% of teenage black females get pregnant. Over 48% of all black children are supported by some level of government. There are more black males that are murdered in America each year than the total number of blacks that died in the Vietnam conflict. Why? Why? Why, when we pass all these laws, and why when we've given all, when the state has passed all these programs to help the poor and to, and, and to help those who, who are the victims of racism? Why is all this happening? Well, my answer is really quite simple. For the most part, we have government programs that were well-intentioned that have produced disastrous consequences, especially for the black family in America. Let me give you some facts that might interest you. In the 1950s, in the 1950s, when racial discrimination was much greater than it was today, than it is today, you realize that the black and white divorce rate in this country was exactly the same? What does that tell you? It tells you that in spite of tremendous racial discrimination, the black family in the 50s was still a unit. You had a dad, and you had a mom, and you had kids. And even though things were tough, the family unit held together. Poverty levels between blacks and whites in the 50s and 40s were very similar. If you were to go down into Los Angeles in the 50s, or go into New York City in the 50s and in the 40s, or into Philadelphia in the 50s and the 40s, you found strong black, a strong black leadership infrastructure in all these communities. 
tremendous pride, tremendous energy, in spite of racial discrimination. So what happened? Our government decided to fix the problem. 1966, the Aid to Dependent Children's Act was passed, which basically said, for every child you have, the government will pay you so much money. The problem with that is, it made more sense for a black man who was working a menial job to leave the home so that the mom could qualify to get the aid based on the number of children that she had. You understand now why you have a high rate of black pregnancies in the black community? Because government programs mandate that the only way these poor people can get ahead in life is to have children because the government pays them so much for every child. I'll tell you something, folks. This grieves my heart. You know, I thought we'd get away with the plantation back in the 1860s. We fought a war over that. And in many ways, our government has put black people right back where they were 100 years ago. Were the intentions good? Absolutely. But the results have been horrific. We have literally wiped out an entire generation of black males in this country. Well, what should, we be, well, what should we be doing in the kingdom then? Number one, it goes back to this very salient point. We need to defend the cause of the poor and the weak. We need to be living symbols of God's justice and mercy and compassion. We need to work with the poor and the oppressed. And we get to get them to understand that by serving others, they help themselves. There should be absolutely no toleration for any form of racial discrimination within or without the Christian community. All support, private and public, should be designed to lift the poor to a place of useful participation in our country. Ephesians 2.10 tells is a practical application of that for Christians. We are created in Christ Jesus unto what? Unto good works. We do good to others by serving them, motivated by grace and compassion. I want to close with a quote. Chuck Colson. Culture is most profoundly changed. Culture is most profoundly changed not by the efforts of huge institutions like the government, but by in, listen to this, but by individual people being changed. In the process, these citizens provide the main bulwark against government's insatiable appetite for power and control, and a safeguard against the sense of impotence fostered by today's overwhelming social problems. Young people, listen. You can make a difference. You had a first-hand opportunity to see what I've been talking about this morning last week. It is individual people that are really going to make a difference in this whole area. It is the Greta Coes, the John Perkins, the Mary Richards, the Kevin Boslers, the Chris Holloway, the people that are really down there doing it. They're the people that are going to really make a difference. And don't expect the government to solve these problems. The government is not going to solve the problem because they don't have the right formula and the right presuppositions. Young people, listen to me. We need to take seriously the mandate of the kingdom, the call to public service, not for the purpose of power, but for service. You see, it doesn't matter where, but we are called to be the agents of justice and mercy and love in a world increasingly occupied by power, by arrogance, and by materialism. You had your whole lives in front of you. You have an opportunity to really make a difference in some of these areas. And it might really cost you something to do that. But I'll tell you, the need is great. 
I was reminded of our Lord. You know, it's really interesting how, how, how culture and race made no difference in the gospel. Remember, do you remember when the Lord made his comment, the fields are white unto harvest? Where was he? He had just talked to the Samaritan woman. That whole class of people that the Jews despised. And he gets up and he looks at Samaria. And he says the, the fields are white unto harvest. Our brother from Baltimore made this point last week. Young people, listen. Don't let culture, don't let race stand in your way of being a mediating person for the kingdom of God at the tail end of the 20th century in the United States of America. Let your life be known by its justice, by its mercy, by its servanthood, and by its grace. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity just to share these few words this morning. We thank you that you have not called us to live our lives in a vacuum, but that as Christians, we also, as citizens of the United States, have a tremendous responsibility. And that responsibility has to do with the mediating of your kingdom. And Father, as we see these terrible circumstances that are around us, help us not to despair, but help us to see them as Christ saw the Samaritan. And Father, I would pray in spite of all this, may we continue to pray for the, to pray for the fact that even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We desire more than anything else to see you and to be able to participate in a kingdom that will know no tears because you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.